Turn with me to Philippians 3. I realized it was six years ago today that here I preached Philippians uh, 121, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that was the one thing. Today is the one and only thing, Philippians 3, 12 through 16. It was three and a half years ago Friday that I preached this text on our final Lord's Day in Beijing, China, after six years of life and ministry there in the capital of that country. In case, if you're new to our church, our church sent Cheryl and I in the end of August 2013 to Beijing for me to pastor Beijing Baptist Church. And then we came back just three and a half years ago. In fact, tomorrow will be, yeah, tomorrow will be three and a half years. But I preached this message there on June 13th, 2019, a modified message of this. And two days later, we would return to the States on July 2nd. That morning, I began my message with this introduction. This is what I began with. I said, today is significant as today may be the last day that Cheryl and I may see some of you. And you see us in this Christian pilgrimage in this body on this side of heaven. So I said, I want to speak with you about an important topic, the one thing. And of course, today I'm calling it the one and only thing. So today, no doubt you're aware, we've turned the page from 2022 to 2023. So you might regard this as a one-off New Year's message, just like Pastor Jamie will preach tonight from Paul's prayer and doxology in Ephesians 3, verses 14 and through 21, I encourage you to read that this afternoon. I used that, of course, and incorporated that in my prayer a few moments ago. And in a sense, kind of like a whole protein, these two messages, if you will, they go together. They're intended to help us reset our hearts and minds for this year. Well, you know that life just has so many one things or one and only things you can't forget. Maybe a set of keys. You're like, where did I put my keys? In fact, we just, there's perfect, that's in my list and we had it illustrated for us this morning. In fact, they've already been claimed, okay. And you, for, the things that you must not forget, you forget or neglect them at your own risk. Keys, cell phone. It seems like it's a weekly refrain in our house Will you call my phone so I can find it? I won't say who's saying that, all right? But that happens occasionally, maybe in your room too. Your charger, your passport, a password, the need to pay a bill, something that you know you need to take care of it, or you're about to go on a long trip and you've realized and you're already late and you're looking and you're at an eighth of a tank of gas. And you, you, like, you need to just go splash some in it. Maybe your mother or father's or you fill in the blank birthday. Like, oh, don't let me forget. Your anniversary. You, and you need your mate to remind you that, in fact, you were married so many years ago on this day. That type of thing. A particular ingredient for a dish you're trying to make. 
or to set the alarm or to leave your faucets running when you have a deep freeze like we did a week ago. Some of you are wondering, you know, about that. Why do you have to do that in South Carolina? Or maybe to not hit the snooze or to remember the name of the person that you've said a thousand times and you go up, you're about to introduce them or pray for them or see them and you're thinking, I don't know their name. And it's the one thing you want to remember at that moment and it's the thing you've completely forgotten. The list goes on and on. You know, maybe if you're preaching, it's your Bible or your printed sermon. Where, you know, where did I put it or whatever. And some of you have your own stories about not forgetting that one thing. It's the one thing. So how is it that you and I do not fail to remember and do the one and only thing that God has called us to do in Christ Jesus? How do we do that? Well, follow me here. By the way, you would look, you would note that you could put Philippians 3 here in Psalm 27 because in Psalm 27, as I preached, I think that a year ago, the psalmist says, this one thing I will seek after, right? In Psalm 27, to be there in God's temple and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And here's another one thing, this one thing in Philippians 3. A little background for a moment is to remember the Apostle Paul was probably one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. There's really no way I think you could prove that like empirically, but I think you can assert it by the fact that he planted churches all throughout the known world in the first century. It's pretty good evidence to make that claim. And the fact that he wrote 13 books in the New Testament that bear his authorship. I would say maybe he even wrote Hebrews but Pastor Jamie can address that. He says he's not. He's, he's saying he's not going to address that as he begins to preach through the book of, of Hebrews for us next Sunday morning. So January 8th, Hebrews 1. Start reading. That's your clue. He says he's not going to address that authorship in a dogmatic way. But if he did write it, Paul did, then that's 14. But Paul had many concerns, many interests, many burdens that he wrote of those. The daily pressure of the churches. But he had a simple, not easy, but he had a simple equation for life in Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is that equation? That is life equals Christ plus nothing. Life equals Christ plus nothing. Now, as we look at this text this morning, and we think about the one and only thing of progressing in our Christian pilgrimage, I want you to think about this around three key words. Verse 12, here it is, your outline, to try to connect three words with these five verses. Verse 12, humility. Verses 13 and 14, clarity. And then verses 15 and 16, Certainty, and I'm going to repeat this through that, but here it is. That's the message. Verse 12, humility. Verses 13 and 14, clarity. Verses 15 and 16, certainty. Let's begin with humility here. Paul had this realistic view of himself, he was humble. 
he had this quality of humility. In fact, he writes significantly of it, of that example of our own Lord's humility in the preceding chapter. He knew he had not arrived. We may fairly assert that, in fact, he was God's gift to the early church, but he did not have that mindset. He knew he was not God's indispensable gift to the church, but what does he, and so what does he tell the Philippians? He says, not that I have already obtained this. He was certain that he was not perfect. He had not procured what he wanted so badly. He had not reached a perfection in the things that he valued so greatly. That is to know Christ. You see this right here. Verse 10. And actually before that, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but he says, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He wanted to be found in Christ. And he said, this is what he desired. Here it is, that I may know him, verse 10, that I may know the power of his resurrection. So the verb there is know, to know, that I may know him, that I might know the power of his resurrection, that I might share, I may participate, I might be side by side in his sufferings. Imagine that. In a world that's obsessed on avoiding pain and obtaining comfort, he says, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, and actually have fellowship with the Son of God in his sufferings. He said that. If possible, I might become like him. And this is the idea of transformation. It's a strengthened word of transformation. This is more than putting brownies in liquid form in your oven, and then they cook and become solid. This is going like from a persecutor, hater, murderer of Christians to becoming this thing that Paul says in Romans 8 in, a, in another book that we were predestined to perfect conformity to the Son of God. But Paul says, not that I have already obtained this. He knew he hadn't. I think it's helpful to remember Pastor Tim Keller's definition of humility here. He says, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. It is in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, where our breath is taken away with Jesus as this model of humility, the one who, Paul wrote, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he says he humbled himself. That is the one to whom we just sang, hallelujah, king of kings and lord of lords. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Paul knew that he had not yet attained all that he desired, all that he hoped for, to know Christ in all the beauty of his person, to know the dynamite-like power of his resurrection, the signal, the single thing that expresses the power of God in the New Testament, that is Christ raised from the dead as first fruits. Paul knew that he did not know Christ in all his beauty. He did not know the power of all of Christ's or all the power of Christ's resurrection. He did not fully understand and participate in this side-by-side fellowship in his sufferings or know all the dimensions of his vicarious, sacrificial death. But he wanted to know all the benefits of Christ's death for his sheep, for the very elect of the Father, to know God's work in his people by the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. To understand this Trinitarian salvation of God the Father in his work of electing a people that the Son would redeem and the Spirit in space and time would come and in new covenant language would take out their hard, stony heart and replace it with his beautiful, beating, God-pleasing, God-desiring heart. That's what Paul longed to know. But he didn't stop. He pressed on. And so you see this word press. I press, verse 12. We'll see it a moment, in a few moments in verse 14. True Christian humility does not equal passivity. And in an era where we love to cocoon and rest and be comfortable, That's not my intention this morning. Paul is speaking of forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, and pressing on to what's in the future. It doesn't mean sitting and doing nothing. We're not caring. It means doing all you can while you can for all those you can with a Christ-like servant spirit. Now, I want to press for a moment into this word press. This word press on is a is a less common use of that word dioka, which means to pursue, to pursue or to persecute. It's the same word. To persecute, to pursue, or to press on. I press on. It's the same word. It's forward. It's intentional. It's pressing. There's a sense of urgency to it. Humility. Verse 12. Here's Paul. Paul longing not to have a righteousness of his own that came through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. He was humble. He exhibited this humility. Let's move on now to clarity. Verses 13 and 14. Paul had a clear view of the Christian life. He knew that his life was a work in progress. So I have a question. Let me, let's apply this briefly. When you deal with others, do you deal with a gracious patience that reflects that you know that just like your life is a work in progress, so is theirs? Do you really, like, functionally, do you believe that? That's the point here. 
He says, brothers, and, and I want to comment as you look there at the first of verse 13, he says, brothers, when you see brothers in the New Testament, Adelphoi, remembering that Paul here is about to address in chapter four these two women that were in conflict, Euodia and Syntyche, it's completely legitimate for us to expand this, as they note in the SV footnotes, that Adelphoi ought to really be, it, it really ought to be brothers and what? Brothers and sisters, that's right, because they were there. And so sisters, we acknowledge you here, okay? Brothers and sisters, he's saying, my, my, my family, may I be transparent? He says, I don't regard, I do not consider that I have made it my own. And this idea of making my own because Jesus Christ has made me my own, I want to give you the picture of this. Think of a boat in the ocean and a scuba diver that has suddenly realized he's come up for air. There are those in the boat, and he realizes there's a big shark that would rather eat him than anything else in the world. And he's swimming for the transom of the boat, the back of the boat. And the guys in the boat, they see their fellow scuba diver coming this way, but he's not taking his time. He's swimming like a madman. And then they see the dorsal fin of the tiger shark coming. And as soon as he, the the... the the, uh, the diver gets to the transom of the boat. He reaches up. They reach out and they lock arms. They take hold of the diver for the same purpose that the diver has taken hold of the guy that's going to rescue them. That's what Paul says. He wants that arm in arm. He wants to hold Jesus Christ, take hold of Christ in all his benefits. Is Christ has taken hold of him. But for clarity, Paul says, look, I'm not there. I haven't arrived. But I see, he says, look, I have clarity about this one thing. And he expresses his clarity, the fact that he knows he hasn't arrived in this one thing. He says, forgetting what is behind. And I want you to look here and notice. You see that word forgetting, verse 13, straining forward, saying, and then I press on. What Paul, the main verb here is Paul saying, I press on. I'm going to be like the men in that medley relay in a couple of years ago in the men's, does anyone remember the men, U.S. men's swim team against France? And we were behind and we came and we beat the French by like one hundredth of a second. And it was this mad churning to make it pressing on, forgetting they might have been behind at the end of the third uh, you know, the third part of the race, but there was one more swimmer to go, and they just pressed on. Paul's saying he presses on, but the way he presses on, it's shaped by these two things. He has a short memory. He forgets it. It's behind him. He says, I forget what lies behind, and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. And there's intentionally two prepositions, behind the Greek preposition for behind, and, and for what's ahead. He says, I'm doing this. It's a windshield mentality to life. It's not a rear view, mere way of thinking, but a forward focus to life. What was Paul aiming to forget? You think about that? When he says, forgetting what lies behind, exactly what is he referring to when he says, what is lying behind? 
What does the context suggest? Paul was aiming to forget all those things in which he previously placed his confidence. The things that he called his gain or his profit. That's why he so strongly warned the Philippians about the circumcisers. That's why he calls them dogs at the beginning of this chapter in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. That's why Grant Osborne says that you may look at the book of Philippians not just as an epistle of joy, not just as an inspired thank you note, but as a judicial work that's aimed to bring a charge against those who would preach another gospel. It was those circumcisers that placed a confidence in the flesh through the act of circumcision, an act that could never save. Because Paul understood that the one and only thing truly needed was not physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart made without hands by the Spirit of God through the instrument of the Word of God, and that's the way of faith. Kids, here's the point. The one thing that you need most is something that you cannot do for yourself. You have to cry out. It's the ultimate mommy, daddy, God, I need you to do this in my heart. And you hear that again and again here. And so I pray don't harden your heart in hearing it again this morning. See, Paul aimed to forget. He, to, he, he aimed to forget every gram of confidence that he ever had in the flesh. Every basis for boasting and confidence. He lists them all there in this chapter, verses 4 through 6. Think about this for a moment. Circumcised on the eighth day. Look at his pedigree. He's putting out here his CV, his resume. Hey, look, like this is the guy you would have hired. You would have hired him right on this. You probably would have offered him on the spot without a second interview. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, is crim de la crim, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was intense. As to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But I want you to do something for a moment. Take a breath and let me read aloud Paul's end of life accounting. All right, this is his year end, not financial statement, but the year end statement that accounts for his life. He says in Philippians 3 and verse 7. He said, but whatever gain I had, that is everything he's mentioned in verses four through six, this is what he says. I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. And in fact, the swagger that Paul could boast, graceless and faithless as it was, it was gone. Everything that had given him confidence prior to that inbreaking moment of God Almighty and the Son of God on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, as Luke tells us, it was swept away in one moment, in one moment, by the beauty and treasure of Christ alone. In him, Paul would say in Colossians, was the hope of glory. And so that all in which he'd previously placed his confidence, it had no reward, no payoff. 
all now is God's grace through the gift of faith. And so this is the one thing Paul did. Forgetting what was in his past and those things in which he placed his confidence. Straining forward to what lay ahead, pressing on to who and what truly mattered in life, his Savior, Christ Jesus. And it's really one thing in three dimensions. It's really to press on, but it's shaped by these words that, live, that end in I and G. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He says, I press on. And Paul is making the Christian life more simple for us right here. My dad used to say, he said, he said, what makes stress in life so complicated is too many choices. You know, I was telling someone, I remember, I was sharing someone um, right before the service that when I was in college, 1979, I would drive home as one person in one car with no cell phone to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 730 miles. Like, I never had to think about, should I put my phone on this mode or that mode or power it up? It was just one thing. Get in the car and have enough gas and stay between the white lines and head south on I-95. Okay. It was uncomplicated. It wasn't easy. It was exhausting. And I remember, you know, those moments falling asleep and thinking, I think I better pull over right now. But Paul simplifies here this Christian life. It's kind of like going south 730 miles. He says, reject any and all confidence in your identity that is not rooted in the cross of Christ. Remove the clutter that distracts you from the mission to which God calls you and every Christian. Look forward. Not look forward, watch this. No strain forward. Strain forward forward like a sprinter running full speed through the tape at the end of the course run run hard run with purpose run with your spiritual tank filled with God's word you can't run on empty right but stop running alone I want to apply this just for a moment are you running alone are you running a life that's barrenness either by being too busy or without accountability, unaccounted for. Beware the danger of thinking you're converted. So, so just for some of you, beware the danger of thinking you're converted and that you're in the race of the Christian life when your life bears no fruit, no spiritual fruit, no evidence of Christ's spirit living in you like in Galatians 5 where there's this manifest aromatic fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This fruit that's animating you, making your life, producing this rich harvest. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith or do you not realize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Verse 12, humility. Verses 13 and 14, clarity. Let's move to verses 15 and 16 in this word certainty. 
You'll notice that Paul had this gospel-shaped view on Christian maturity. You see it there in verses 7 through 14. It's very interesting. Because in effect, it starts with passivity, but ends with, you might say, activity. The passivity is, he says, you know where I want to be found? I want to be found sitting in the place, the most secure place of all. Not my own righteousness that I could derive from the law, which is a mirage, but a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So there he sits. He had this gospel-shaped view on Christian maturity that began with first being found in Christ with the righteousness of Christ through faith. But he expresses certainty about God's commitment to produce that in every Christian. Look at this with me in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I kind of like that. That's like the person that says, if you're screwing up, don't worry, I'll tell you about it. Thanks. You know, great. Okay. You'll let me know. There'll be no wonder. All right. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And I think here, Paul was referring to his way of thinking, a, a genuine Christian maturity, which was cultivated, which was this cultivated habit of living this way, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, and pressing on for the goal, literally where we get the word scope, like a scope to a rifle, where you have this line and that line and crosshairs, scope on, the mark. That's the idea there. It's a mark for shooting at, classically, this word, scope on. Or as a moral, someone has said, as a moral or intellectual end. And there was Paul's cultivated, mature habit. Forgetting what lay behind, straining forward to what lay ahead. And that mirrored Paul's ambition to know the Son of God deeply, all this first part of Philippians 3. To know by his own experience all the power of the Son's resurrection. It's where in full flower the Christian life is more than a set of theological propositions you can state. The believer actually has experience, the experience of the life of God in the soul. This is what we're talking about. And so Paul's ambition was to know the Son of God deeply, just as you would know another person, not to know about them, but to know them in full affection and knowledge, to know the power of the Son's resurrection, to relate to and embrace, even with tears, even with, with pain, even with the struggle, to know something of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, and therefore to be Come like the Son of God, even in his death. This, Paul was certain, was what God was committed to create in the hearts of his people. There's our word certainty. This, Paul was certain, God would reveal to the Philippians because, as he wrote in chapter 1 and verse 6, he knew that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion 
until the day of Christ Jesus. This Paul was certain. It was part of God's complete plan of redemption. We see this in the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be first, the firstborn among many brothers. And Paul goes on, he says, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Take cheer. Yes, we have a lot to be humble about. We're still works in progress. But the promise is that he has predestined us, his sheep, his elect to be conformed one day to the very likeness of his son. Still, there's a warning here in these last two verses of our exposition. There's a warning to the Philippians, and it's to us. Don't look back. Who looked back, by the way, and turned into a pillar of salt, kids? Who remembers? Who? Lot's wife. Don't look back. Don't fall back. Don't let up. And I think today, I think if we're honest, when we think of staycations and cocooning and binge watching of movies and shows where everything is at our fingertips, comfort is an idol. But we're called, we're called here to imitate Paul. That's why Paul says, join in imitating me. When he says, join in imitating me, verse 17, join in imitating me in this mature pattern of forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, and pressing on for the goal of the high calling or the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. So I want to ask you a question. Let's like be honest. Does your life show a pattern of progress in the faith? If you go back, and we had just said from January 1 of 2022, so now to today, these last 365 years, are you growing? Reasonably, are you growing? Are you growing in the faith? Or are you spotty, inconsistent, unreliable? Are you like, do you have this chronic ADD with respect to spiritual growth? You're so distracted, you're, you're never focused on growing in Christ in a consistent way. So I want to, but I want to apply this. Maybe you think, yeah, that's me. Maybe you're like, yeah, that's me. Listen. Discouraged Christian, there's good cheer. And in a psalm, I'm so glad you did, we, we sang from Psalm 42, I think, this morning, right, Richard? Psalm 42. And, and, and what's the psalmist thing? He's preaching to himself. Hey, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. You keep hoping in God, and there's gonna come a moment where the clouds are gonna part, and you're going to praise him. So I want to encourage you this morning. Encourage yourself in the powerful, redeeming grace of God. God has not predestined you to a holiness. He's not predestined you to a transformation to Christ-likeness that he will not produce in you for the sake of his great name. His name's at stake here. His plan is to produce that holiness in you, though, through the provision of the means of grace. How will he do that? Progressively. Good growth, it takes time, right? Good growth takes time, but it also takes effort. 
right? Don't forget this. Justification, regeneration, right? That's monergistic. That's God alone. Your sanctification, you and God are working in partnership. Yep. There's effort involved. There's the means of grace. But you can't do it in your own strength. You need the truth, the power, and the light of the gospel of, our, of, of Jesus. You need the sanctifying and the persevering power of his spirit. I might say the preserving. Will you ever persevere? You need the, per, the preserving power of his spirit. You and I need all the means of grace. And we need that not just individually, but corporately together, gathered together. All right? The word, prayer, the fellowship of his people, the Lord's day, and the sacraments. That's why. Let me say this. I want to apply this very practically. Next Sunday, it's our once a month fellowship meal. I know sometimes you're like, hey, it just seems like we just had one. That's our time to be together, to eat together. Eating is like this common denominator. Last I checked, everyone here eats and drinks, okay? So we do that together. We do that. That's where we get to know one another. Gathered church, fellow saints, we all need to take advantage that he's designed, what, of, of all that he's designed in the means of grace to make us grow up into him who is the head and to press on toward the prize, on toward the mark of the upward call of God in Christ. Do not regress. Press forward. There is a sense in which if you're sitting still, you're probably going backwards. Let's hold true, Paul says. Only this one thing. Remember, he said one thing. That's, the, that's exclusive language. One thing I do, verse 13. And then he uses this little adverb, only. How will we hold true? That's the, like the only thing. What you need to remember is on, only remember this for the test. What are you to hold? How are you to hold true? Only to what you've already attained. I want you to hear Chrysostom as he makes this myopic pursuit of the competing athlete. Think of a runner aiming for the finish line come alive for us. This is Chrysostom, or Chrysostom, as some of you would say. He says, he that runs looks not at the spectators, but at the prize. Whether they be rich or poor, if one mocks them, applaud them, insult them, throw stones at them, if one plunders their house, if they see their children or wife or anything whatsoever, the runner is not turned aside. He that runneth stoppeth nowhere, since if he be a little, rem little remiss, all is lost. He that runneth relaxeth in no respect before he end, but then most of all stretcheth over the course. Humility, clarity, certainty. Let me ask you a question. What is your one thing? What is your 2023 about? What is the why of your life? Is it the same as the Apostle Paul? Is it the same as that old saved by grace apostle of the cross? I pray it is. There's so much you can forget. But let's not forget the reality that anything and everything that is not found in the cross of Christ will never secure 
your life now or in eternity. May God make this true this morning in every life here to the praise of his name. Let's remember the one and only thing.